0: Well, as you know, we have been talking about the uh, Laodicean church period, and uh, it's something we want to take uh, our time with. I think it's absolutely crucial that you see every aspect of it. We looked at how that, uh, you know, uh, right around the beginning of the 1900s, how the devil began to bring in some things that... Uh, audibly made the change. In time, I want to show you how it even goes back before that. But <clears throat> we talked about uh, uh, how this thing transitioned. Last week, we ended We ended with the, uh, the transitional pastors, men who were basically the last of the Philadelphian church age. And um, <clears throat> many of these guys, uh, they started out believing the King James Bible, and then they wind up 30 years, 40 years later, not believing it anymore. And uh, <clears throat> we we went through the list, and very quickly we'll just brief it again. We talked about George Truitt, uh Mel Trotter. Uh, those were guys that <clears throat> basically stayed true to the book all the way through. Uh, there early on, we saw guys like Lewis Barry Schaefer, who uh, was was a renowned theologian. He never believed the book. Harry Ironside is an old radio preacher. Wrote a lot of basic books. J. Frank Norris, uh, we talked about him. <clears throat> William Scroggy, he's uh, right around the uh, 1800s, uh, toward the end of the 1800s. Uh, Mordecai Ham, uh, great preacher. Uh, the old Methodist Robert Shuler, uh, Charles Fuller, uh, Martin Dahon, all of these guys. Billy Sunday, uh, all of these guys started out believing the book. Some of them change their position as it goes on. One of the ones we talked about last week with John R. Rice. And <clears throat> we find that, uh, again, the rise of scholarship comes up. And these guys, uh, they're caught in the middle of it. And they have to, uh, you know, they have to make a choice. And most of them, for their, for their incomes, they, they go with the, the scholarship. It was big back then. And I told you this last time. <clears throat> it was really big back then for uh, in the fifties and the 60s and the seventies for a Bible college, uh, and this was their real their heyday to have an old time Philadelphian preacher uh, associated with their school it uh, It was very impressive for uh, you to have uh, you know uh, one of these old guys like John R. Rice, who uh, uh, was one of the great preachers uh, associated with your school. People recognized who he was and you know, it was a, it was a great publicity uh, ad is what it was. <clears throat> You're going to find a lot of the guys. Uh, B.R. Lakin was another great, great preacher. And B.R. Lakin pretty much stayed true to the book right up till he died. But <clears throat> here again, back in the 70s and the 80s, before he died, you know, Jerry Falwell took him in. And every time on Sunday morning, there would be B.R. Lakin sitting up there on the platform with, uh, behind Jerry Falwell. And it gave his school credibility. Because, uh, you know, he was a great, great, great preacher. And so, you know, these guys, <clears throat> basically, they're up in the age. Most of them did not have any retirement. <clears throat> Most of them did not have anything, the, you know, the, all of their life they spent preaching. So for somebody to take them in, give them a place to live, give them money, feed them, take care of them, <coughs> to use their notoriety, you know, that was, a, that was a big deal. And so many of these guys did that. Uh, We talked about Billy Graham, R.A. Torrey, (coughs) uh, Bob Jones Sr. was one. Uh, We talked about Wendell Zimmerman, who, um, uh, believe it or not, we have uh, uh, in our own church, we have a a direct relative of Wendell Zimmerman, uh, been coming on Sunday, Uh, Dallas Billington, uh, Beecham Vick, Lee Robertson, John Rawlings, uh, Harold Seitler, Howard Sears, another great evangelist was R.G. Lee. And again, he was swept up in all of the thing, and and uh, and uh, you know it was a it was a thing that, that the way it went down. Uh, Victor Sears, Reg Woodward, Noel Smith, uh, Oliver B. Green's another one, and then of course uh, these are what we call the transitional pastors, and they are very important in understanding what happened to Bible believing Christianity or Baptist churches, and uh, these guys all died off by the 1980's, maybe the last of them in the 90's. A few of them are still around, but not many of them. Billy Graham's still around, most of them are gone. But they produced the next generation of preachers uh, that really became the leaders of fundamentalism that uh, were the next generation. And it's an interesting thing, when you, and and most people never see this, Every generation after the last generation has a tendency to degenerate more. And uh, it's, it's just that law of human collapse. And you're going to find that once they got rid of the book, uh, it, was, uh, it was just a matter of time before everything fell apart. And that's exactly what happened with these next set of guys who took over. <clears throat> uh, there wasn't a, hardly one of them that believed the Bible. You're going to find that uh, every one of them, along with their church, almost without an exception, and I'll, I'll, I'll give them to you as we go through, uh, they also build a school, a Bible college. Back in the 70s, uh, that was the thing to do. And it was almost like, um, you know, it, uh, all these churches broke out into little fellowships. You had, you know, the Baptist Bible Fellowship down in Springfield. Well, to keep their churches together, their pastors together in a little political world, they had to have their own Bible college. So they started Baptist Bible College down in Springfield, Missouri. Tennessee Temple did the same thing. Uh, Jack Hiles <coughs> did the same thing. Jerry Farwell did the same thing. And to them, it was it was a way to build a big church. And, uh, you know, they brought these guys in and, and, uh, you know, got all these kids coming into their schools, and uh, they put them to work in their churches and required them to go to their church, you know, instantaneously, if their school had 500 students in it, their church attendance was up 500, and and that's basically how it went. And this is the beginning, uh, or coming to the apex, I guess, not the beginning, but certainly coming to the... The apex point where education really takes over just about everything. And once these old boys died off, <clears throat> and like I said, many of them dumped the final authority before they even died. and uh, But the next generation, the next generation has completely no understanding of, of the Bible. And it, it produced my the next generation, which is the generation that's leading it today, and uh, it, it's even farther from where it was then, because every generation has a tendency. We talked about old Bob Jones Sr. <clears throat> Bob Jones Sr. was a <clears throat> was a Methodist preacher, and he was a great preacher, and he believed the book. <clears throat> Someplace along the line, uh, they start a a university. Started out to be a Bible college, and of course we all know it is Bob Jones University, named after the founder, Bob Jones Sr. Bob Jones was a Bible believer through and through. By the time you get into the 50s and the 60s, when he's really getting up in age, he becomes senile. And uh, the generation that he produces, uh, his own son, uh, which is Bob Jones II, and then his son, Bob Jones III, uh, they both take over the school uh, when the old man dies and passes off the scene. When I was coming up in, the, uh, in my day in the 70s, uh, Bob Jones II was, was the dominating factor in, 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 in fundamental Christianity. Bob Jones University probably was the <clears throat> number one school that uh, everybody uh, wanted to be associated with. And I got to tell you, you know, all of these guys here that I'm about to go through for you, I heard all of them preach. Many of them I knew. Uh, I didn't know too many of the, uh, of the older guys Personally, I've heard some of them preach that were the last of the guys like R. G. Lee, John R. Rice, Oliver Green, Martin Dehan. Those are all guys I heard preach. But these guys here that we're about to talk about were 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 guys that uh, that uh, were at the, in their heyday when I was coming into this thing in the 70s and the 80s, and you know they were very prominent in their in their day. And both Bob Jones II. He never believed the King James Bible was the word of God a day in his life. And when the old man got senile, they just kind of kept him around for window dressing and uh, gave him a place to live there on campus. And, you know, they hitchhiked off of his greatness. But, you know, Bob Jones II never believed the word of God a day in his life. I'll tell you, I think probably as far as an orator is concerned, somebody who can speak and speaks well, I don't think I ever heard a better preacher speaker than Bob Jones II. He was the most eloquent speaker I've ever heard in my life. They used to say that George Whitfield uh, was the most eloquent speaker of his day. That he could pronounce the word Mesopotamia, and people would weep because he would say it with such passion and such with such beauty of the English language. And of course, I never heard George Whitfield. I'm not that old. Never heard George Whitefield. George George Whitfield, <clears throat> but I did hear Bob Jones II. And Bob Jones II was a great orator. Uh, I've heard him him preach on many, many occasions in person. And uh, I I never, even though I had a disdain for him because of his denial of the book, and and, and Bob Jones University was just a terrible place uh, for young men. It destroyed probably more young men's Christianity and faith in the Bible than any other organization that I know of. Bob Jones University basically became the Roman Catholic Church of Fundamentalism. It was always interesting to me that Bob Jones University made a lot of movies back in the 70s, and they were all movies about Christian and people in Christianity. And they were great. I mean, they were absolutely done first class. I mean, they rivaled anything you'd see in Hollywood. And they always had a biblical base and a biblical theme, and usually it was some Connection with church history, and and it was always a, it was always funny to me that Bob Jones the in these movies, and there were always movies up against the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, he always played the part of the Pope, and boy, he played the part well. It always amazed me that the why he he played the pope, the part of the Pope so well is simply because that he was the Pope when it came to. <laughs> to uh, <clears throat> to uh, fundamentalism. Bob Jones University had such power, and, and and I'm not getting this from books now. I'm getting this because I, I lived this. I know these, this to be true. I'm not going off of something I read. I, I, I knew this to be true be, because I lived this period. <clears throat> Bob Jones University, Bob Jones uh, University was such a powerful place <clears throat> that uh, they basically commanded what you could do and what you could not do. Pastors stood in fear of the retribution because <clears throat> you didn't do things the way they said you should do it. They're the ones that they produce churches like Tri City here in uh, over here in Independence. <clears throat> Tri City is a is a Bob Jones church. You're going to find that there's lots of churches around here. Another one uh, is Open Door Baptist Church over in Kansas. That's a that's a Bob Jones uh, affiliated church, and maybe not anymore, but it was at one time. <clears throat> They had a great impact on Baptist churches. <clears throat> and the impact was one of terror. You didn't cross Bob Jones. You just did not. <clears throat> if you had a guy preaching uh, in your church, like a Southern Baptist guy, and your pulpit, it did not matter if he was a saved man. It did not matter if he believed the Bible inside and out. If you had a, somebody outside, <clears throat> what their guidelines were of what a Christian was so supposed to be, you got excommunicated. They clobbered you. Uh, my... Uh, the guy that I and I think I told you this. Thank you. We just put it right there. <clears throat> the guy that um, I will put it over here, so we don't. I don't want to take a chance on spilling an angry guy stuff. <clears throat> when I was growing up in Canton, uh, I told you about the rivalry between Mel Shabaka and uh, Bob Johnson. Bob Johnson was the music director, and uh, Mel Shabaka was the college and career director, and and uh, they both were uh, people in my life that I knew very intimately, and had done things with both of them, and 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 knew them both very well, <clears throat> most of my life. And uh, <clears throat> Bob jo- uh, Bob uh, Bob Johnson was always connected with Bob Jones University. He graduated from there. And in our home church back there, there was always a pull between Sabaka, who did not believe in Bible colleges and wouldn't send a kid anywhere and train him up there, then Bob, who wanted to pull all the kids and send them down to uh, Greenville, South Carolina, Bob Jones University. And of course, the name of the game was, <coughs> once you hit the magical number of how many people you sent to the school, because every kid you sent down there was money in their pocket, at some point, they'll return the favor. And about four or five years after... You know, him doing that, well, he got the golden goose, so to speak. Bob Jones University had him down for their graduation and made him an honorary doctor degree. See, that's what everybody wanted. Everybody wanted to... You're going to see in this next group, all these guys are doctors. They're doctors of theology. There's so many doctors around you think God was sick. <clears throat> They're all doctors. They all go after that degree. 99% of them do not have an earned degree. 99% of them... <clears throat> have a a uh, degree that somebody gave them uh in a, in an honorary fashion, and then there was the <clears throat> there was the the you know the degree mills uh we got a guy back here that uh, we carry his books sam Gibb and uh, I know Sam personally Sam is a contemporary of mine he's an evangelist, and Sam is out of canton Sam went to ruckman school graduated from ruckman school, and he lived in Canton there with me and we you know he's my age we we were good friends and uh, and uh, he is a guy that, he, he's a good preacher, uh, and uh, he wrote some great books. I, I I don't know of a better book on the King James Bible and the issues than his uh, question and answers about the King James Bible. I just don't know of a better book. His book, on the Understandable History of the King James Bible, isn't a great book, but he's a guy that he felt like he needed to uh contend with these guys so he got him an honor he got him a doctor degree he didn't get an honorary degree and he didn't go somewhere to get one he got one of these degree mills that basically you send them three hundred dollars or four hundred dollars and <clears throat> and pass for a little quiz test and they'll send you an honorary doc he'll send you an earned doctor degree you know and somebody says where's your doctor degree from well i got a doctor doctorate from bob jones university that that means something and somebody says, where'd you get your, where's your doctor degree from? My, you know, Hal's degree house over here on 35th and Main, you know. It doesn't mean anything. But here's the key. It doesn't care. If you got the DR after your name, that's all that matters. Nobody ever checks and sees where it is because that's, that's where it's all at. And Bob Jones University, uh, you know, uh, they had such power that about 10 years after I left, Bob uh, Johnson... Left as the music director, went to some church in Florida, and he had a guy in the, to sing in the church that didn't mat, match up to Bob Jones Senior standards. You know what they did? One felled swoop, yanked his doctor degree and took it away from him. See, that's the power they held over you, and that was the name of these places. They that you did something for them, but Bob Jones University was, as far as I am concerned, my own personal opinion. They were, the Roman, they were the Roman Catholicism of, of the Baptist world. And uh, they, they held sway and they held court. And uh, I got to tell you, the Bob Jones II, he was one of the most masterful orators in the pulpit that I've ever heard in my life. He could use the English language in a way that I could never dream to. And it was powerful. Uh, uh, you know, if he'd have had the Bible and he'd have believed the Bible, God only knows what he could have done. Um, yet on the other side, <clears throat> you know, I I I'll tell you things in here. Uh, this is this is I grew up in this, and you know, I would never say things like this from the pulpit. But <clears throat> you know, there was a another big Baptist preacher uh, in this in this city uh, years ago that that uh, was a was another friend of mine, and um, we spent a lot of time together. And I would drive him places, and he liked kind of hang out with me, and you know, I enjoyed. I learned a lot from him. <clears throat> I learned a lot what the not do in ministry, but I learned a lot from him. <clears throat> and I asked him one time, I asked him one time, I said, because I really didn't, you know, I was young and I was learning, and, and I asked him, I said, I said, tell me about, because he was in with these guys. I mean, he was, he'd, he'd go to lunch down there. He'd, he knew them. He would preach for them. He had him up in our church up here, uh, you know, and and so I asked him, I said, Truman, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what is the deal with Bob Jones University? I said, what is the deal with Bob Jones II? I said, I, I don't understand it. And he took a deep breath and he said, "He said, let me tell you something. And he, he'd always say this to me. He'd look over and he'd look underneath his glasses and he says, if you ever tell anybody this, I'll deny it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, <clears throat> if you ever tell anybody this, I'll deny it. No, it will be on tape, so it doesn't matter. He said, you know what, Bob? He says... I, I never told this to anybody. He says I've been down at Bob Jones University, and I've eaten in the blue room. That's their big room. They have a, it's a palace down there. I've eaten in the blue room, and he said I, 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 I with them. And he said I got to tell you, you know what bothers me? He says in all the times I've been around uh, Bob Jones uh, the second, he said I've never ever felt the spirit that the guy. I've never seen. I don't forget exactly how he said it, but it came down to this where he didn't. He stopped, he didn't think the guy was saved. He says he's got an affinity for pornography. Uh, he'd go to Europe and he'd be he'd buy all this nude art and bring it back and put it up in the halls down there because it was classic stuff, you know, and it was expensive stuff. And uh, you know, he says I have never seen uh, in his life any sign of a, a real regeneration. And he says he said that, that's and, and he knew it much better than I did. Now, I don't know if Bob Jones II was saved or not. Uh, I I, I don't know. But I'm telling you, there was something wrong with the whole system down there. And the next guy that took over was his son, uh, Bob Jones III. And uh, he was even worse than than Bob Jones II. And Bob Jones II is dead now, and Bob Jones III is up there in years himself And he runs the school now, or at least he did last time. I knew about it. I don't know what's going on. They may all be gone by by now. I don't know. But anyway, he ran it for a while, and it was even worse. And uh, I don't know of any organization that really represents what the schools did during this period of time. And they destroyed hundreds of thousands of young men's faith in the Word of God. And uh, it it just, I, I can't impress that upon you enough. And and I could just teach you church history and we'd be out of here, uh, you know. But I think it's valuable for you to understand, you know, what I know. I think it's invaluable for you to hear what I got to say because I'm not reading this out of a book. I lived this. I, I was there. I saw these things. And to me, it's been, and even though you maybe never will be able to live it, I, it, it honors to God. It is the single greatest thing in my life that God ever used to give me my balance, to show me, by contrast, the difference between the two. And there's not a day in my life that I don't thank God for, for that ability that he did for that with me and, and, and how it was. Uh, another one during this time was Jack Hiles. And see, Jack Hiles was uh, back in uh, the 70s and the 80s. He was running 10,000 in Sunday school. He's in Hammond, Indiana. You went to his pastor's school, you told me couple of times you said and he knows he knows how it was man but they were super legalist too boy i mean uh boy you and, and jack hiles uh if, i mean he he was something else and he was he was absolutely known for uh for just brutality with his with his staff members i mean he would just treat them like dogs man and uh they, you had to hold a line boy you stepped out of line one place you're gone man And yet he was held up as the epitome of what everybody uh, wanted to be. And um, Jack Hiles, now he believed the Bible. But here's what they all did. He believed the King James Bible was the Word of God. He'd take a stand of it in a pulpit. But you know what he did? He started a school, a Bible college called Hiles Anderson. And even these guys who believed the Bible in the pulpit, they had all these college professors come in who didn't believe the Bible and tore the Word of God down in the young kids' lives when he went to the school there. It was the most ridiculous thing I ever saw in my life. And, uh, you know, these guys were, were, all, were all the same. And Jack Hiles was a, you know, I told you that it was the big time of, of attendance. And he was the king of the hill, 10,000 people in his church. And of course, when you got on the inside, you saw that it was pretty much fluff. When you went to Jack House's church every Sunday, you know what you got? You got the hell preached out of you. That's what you got. You were told you were rotten because you wasn't out there knocking on doors. That you weren't involved in a bus ministry. You were. This is the church that was sending the buses eighty miles one way to bring people in, just so they could hold ten thousand in church. And they never did anything with them. The most shadow people you know, in Christianity was during that period of time, most of them aren't going to church anywhere now. We brought them in. We worked them to death. We taught them nothing about the Bible. We gave them nothing for their families. We gave them nothing. Hey, in these churches, when you came down and got saved, you know what you got? You got a slap on the back from the preacher and you say, bless God, and then he puts you into a ministry. Nobody discipled you. Nobody asked you what your problems were. Nobody helped you. You got thrown into a ministry, and then... Everybody, and then six months later when you're burnt out because you don't have nothing to go on and nobody helped you, then they blame you for not being spiritual. And that's the way the system worked. And that, it just happened that way all through this thing. And I look back on it now and, you know, it's, that whole generation, you know, is missing. There was a guy in, in Maslin, Ohio whose name was Bruce Cummings. Bruce pastored the Maslin Baptist Temple. And he was a, a guy during my time, and, 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 and he, he's dead now, and most of these guys are. But he was absolutely fervent with the King James Bible. And he started a Bible institute, see? There's a difference between a Bible college and a Bible institute. That's why we don't call what we do uh, a Bible college. We call it a Bible institute because it's not accredited. And, and Bruce turned out some good guys, and he was a good preacher. Down in Atlanta, Georgia, we had we had a guy by the name of Cecil Hodges, and Cecil Hodges was 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 a preacher, and he was a good preacher, but again, he believed absolutely nothing about the Word of God, nothing about the Word of God, and these guys walked around like they were part of the Trinity, and uh, they they felt like everybody owed him something. He started a church, uh, started a school down in Atlanta, uh, Amer- um, Liberty. I forget what it was, American Baptist or something. I forget what it was. But he started a school. Same thing. Nothing but destroying people's lives in the Word of God. And uh, we have a guy that uh, used to call me every once in a while. And uh, uh, he was a guy that uh, uh, was in my college class when I went from the high school over to Baptist Temple to the college and career class. The college and the career guy that was there before me, his name was Ken Harrell. And Ken Harrell was a political guy through and through. And when Ken Harrell left the college and career class, he went down with Cecil Hodges uh, to Atlanta uh, to start uh, to be a guy that was a point man that was going to be a recruiter for this. And when he did, he took three or four of the young men uh, that were in a college class down there with feathers in his cap and took them down to school with him, you know, to get things rolling. All four of those boys today, his faith is destroyed in the Word of God. In fact, the one kid... That calls me every once in a while. He told me. He says he said they they, he, they he to this day he can't get back in it, and he knows he was wrong. He knows what they did, but they destroyed his faith so much he simply cannot get back to it. He hates the whole concept of it, but it destroyed him to the point that he'll, he'll never get back. And that's exactly what it all ha- is. What they did and, and, and how it happened. Jack Van Impey's another one. Jack Van Impey's still alive. And you can catch him on television every once in a while. And uh, I heard Jack Van Impe preach revivals. I've probably been part of t- ten Jack Van Impe revivals. And uh, here's a guy that you know he was a he was a showman. He was an excellent preacher. Jack Van it always amazed me. Jack Van Impe <coughs> memorized the New Testament, and I could never understand how a guy. And he learned how to memorize it off to that guy I told you about a while back whose name was Fred Brown. Fred Brown was a great Bible teacher, long dead. He was one of the old guys, a great Bible preacher. And and he memorized the whole New Testament. And Jack Van Impe learned to memorize the New Testament from him. And I never understood how a guy like Jack Van Impe, who could spend time memorizing the New Testament and not believe the book. I mean, I, I just couldn't get that. Well, I mean, I figured it out since that point. Jack Van Impey was not interested in learning it to learn the book. He was interested in learning it so he could impress people by knowing he knew the New Testament. Now, he could preach. But he was the kind of preacher that he preached on the urgency of the day. And his big sticks were, uh, back then, uh, communism was the big threat. And everybody was afraid uh, you know, this is back right after the Cuban Missile Crisis and Russia's at her at her zenith, you know, in the seventies. <clears throat> so he would go to churches and he would preach on the coming war with Russia. He'd preach on Gog versus Magog and, and the Antichrist, and he would pack the places out. And uh, you know, and he preached on the uh, uh he would preach out of the, most of his messages were 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 uh were, were prophecy messages. Uh, if he had to make a living teaching a Bible, letting you ask Bible questions about the Bible, he'd starve to death. These guys, all they knew was what their pet stick messages were, that they just went from city to city to city and preached. They didn't know anything about the Bible. And now Jack Van Ippi's still on the deal, and now the war didn't come with Russia. <laughs> See? And and then, so uh, uh, now he's on another stick 30 years later the coming war with Iraq and Iran, you know. I mean, he just he just moved from one thing to the other. And um, these guys, nobody remembers, you see. I mean, I remember, but nobody else remembers. And now he's just as popular, and people go, ooh, ah, and they don't even know that 30 years ago, he was 40 years ago, he was preaching something else that never happened. And a guy named Art Wilson, this is always a funny one. <clears throat> Art Wilson was one of these guys who, <clears throat> again, he was an evangelist. One of his favorite messages was, Ten, re, uh, ten Reasons Why Man Will Never Land on the Moon. What do you think happened to that message in 1974? <clears throat> and I always thought that was funny. He, he, he wrote a book. Uh, maybe, it was, was it, maybe it was three reasons why man will never land on the moon. I'm sure you could buy those copies uh, pretty cheap if you wanted. He's probably got a bunch of them someplace. He's dead too, but anyway. But, you know, that, that was the same thing. James Robinson was another great preacher. Again, he got hooked up with a school, Jerry Farwell. Jerry Farwell in the early days, uh, was a great guy. And uh, Jerry Falwell uh, wasn't in with the J. Frank Norris crowd. He's the generation after. But he went to Lynchburg, Virginia. And he carved out a church in Lynchburg, Virginia, back in the early days. And he was a great guy. He really was. And uh, he was a great preacher. <coughs> but you know what happened to him? He got into politics. He lost the calling of being a pastor, and uh, he he, he got into the politics side. You see, now I look at that, and for me, the Bible is my model for everything. I don't hardly do anything in life. I don't even go to the bathroom without the model in the Bible. I mean, to me, the Bible is the model for everything. You know what I see in the Old Testament? I see that the line of the kings and the line of the prophets were two separate lines. And they never crossed. You never saw a prophet other than David become a king. You never saw the that line of the kings cross the line of, of Levi. Never did. They, they were two separate lines. And the man of God never got involved in the political side of it. He just held God's line and God's truth. But you see, why don't they see that? Well, the reason why they don't see it is because the Bible had long since ceased to be uh, the thing that they're following. And so you find Jerry Falwell gets his moral majority, he gets into politics, and uh, once you get into politics, you've got to take a side with the Republicans. You know what, you, the Democrats will never hear your sal- ma- salvation message again. You take a side with the Democrats, and the Republicans will never hear your salvation message again. <coughs> you just cut your crowd in half. And that's why Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is the Caesar, and unto God what is the gods. Jesus was never involved in the politics of his day. He separated himself from it because he knew the moment he did, he would, he would ostracize one of the other groups, whatever side he, he identified with. And that's why preachers can't do that. You don't change, you don't change the moral tone of any country. It's a proven fact in history. You do not change the moral fiber of a country by Christians getting involved in politics. You change the moral fiber of a country by preachers getting in a pulpit and preaching the hell out of sin and keeping everybody in the book. That's how you do it. That's how, that's how Billy Sunday single-handedly brought in Prohibition. And that's why, you know, in the early great preachers, they kept the moral compass pointed toward God and the Bible. But now we've lost our way and we've lost our moral compass. And these guys, these guys were the guys that came out of that transition crowd. And none of them believed the book. I'd say one out of 100, if you got everybody together. One out of 100. Um, you got uh, uh, Jerry Falwell, obviously, started, uh, what did he do? He did the same thing. He started a Bible college, Liberty University. Once you do that, you've got to bring in all of the worldly things that have to come in to make it a university. And, you know, it, it loses the whole concept. Uh, down in Pensacola, Florida, you've got uh, uh, Arlen and Becky Horton, and they have Beck, uh, Pensacola Christian College. Pensacola Christian College is an offshoot of Bob Jones University, the most legalistic group you'll ever find in your life. And it's a thing where... You know, that's that's another that's another concept down in. They had Bob Gray down in Florida and another guy, another great preacher starts out believing the word of God, but winds up not believing it. Uh, uh, The guy that I was associated with Truman Dollar. And, uh, you know, I probably understood a new Truman Dollar better than anybody on the planet. Not because I was so close to him, but I, I, I got to observe on the inside and see things and understand. <coughs> and uh, uh, in my mind, he was one of the greatest enemies to the King James Bible. And he used, to, he used to give me tough time all the time about believing the book. And yet he never stopped me from preaching the book because of the fact that he, he liked the results of people getting saved. But he never believed the Bible was the Word of God any day of his life. In fact, uh, you know, uh, uh, he would he would uh, he would call me into the office, and he would he had an ongoing uh, writing debate with with Peter Ruckman, and uh, he would write Ruckman these letters to just uh, tick Ruckman off, and then he would just sit back and laugh about it, you know, about uh, and he yeah, that's, how, that's how he got his uh, that's how he got his kicks. And uh, he would write these letters to Ruckman, and he'd call me, and they'd say, read that. And then he'd just sit back and laugh and laugh. And, you know, it was a thing where Ruckman would fire back to him, you know, and they would get it back and forth. And, and he never was any more serious about it than, than anything on this planet. To him, it was just a big joke and a big game. And uh, <clears throat> one time <clears throat> uh, we were in staff meeting, and uh, he came in all hot and mad and and uh, and was uh, upset and, uh, and he was just ranting and raving. And uh, somebody was going around the church um, putting these little round stickers on things that said the King James Bible, the Bible that God loves and the devil hates. And they were putting them throughout the church. And he indirectly accused me of doing it or somebody, by that time I had a, quite a following in my college class, about five, 600 people, somebody doing it. I knew nothing about it and I just said hey I don't I don't have a clue well they kept popping up everywhere one day I was going out and um uh leaving in I got in my car it was parked in front of the church and there on my dashboard on the speedometer was one of those stickers and it wasn't there when I went in so I I I, was just puzzled to death and I, I I went back in you know and I could just couldn't figure the thing out and uh and every staff meeting he just beat me up on that thing and blamed me or somebody in my and just you know, I couldn't find out who did it. Well, there's a guy in our church today that is very obscure and most of you know who he is, but you don't know anything about him. It's Jim <laughs> Bruce. You know who Jim Bruce is? Well, Jim Bruce has been with me for 35 years. Oh, and Jim Bruce was when I walked back into church. <clears throat> Jim Bruce come walking down the hallway. And I thought, I said, Jim, I said, <coughs> I said, let me ask you a question. I said, have you been here for a while? And he said, you know, Jim, yeah, Jim had no clue. And Jim said, yeah, I, I've been here for a while. He said, I was just doing some things here in the church. And I said, did you see anybody at all <coughs> around, out in the parking lot, or around my car? <coughs> he said, no, Bob. He says, I didn't see anybody. He says... He said, well, he said, the only one I saw was Truman Dollar went out and put something in your car. And I said, what did you say? I had to hear it again. I said, what did you say? He said, well, Truman, to, to Pastor Dollar is the only one I saw. He went out and he he put something in your car. And I said, okay. And sucker was putting those things around and blaming me for it. And, uh, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Yeah, right. <clears throat> I fixed him really good, and he never figured out who did this. <coughs> Next gun show I went, I found a bumper sticker, and it was about that long, and he was always going down to to the big guys down at Springfield, and he'd drive his big Lincoln Continental down there, you know, and they'd all park down there together, and then they'd go out afterwards. And I got this bumper sticker that said had a, had a big skull on it with a snake crowing out the eyes and the mouth and everything, and over here it said, kill them all, let God sort them out. <coughs> And one night I went up there and I put that on his back bumper and I shellacked it with super glue and everything else that it was never going to come off. He never saw it. He went down, the story was, I wasn't there, but the story was, I heard about it. The story was, he could never prove who did it. The story was, he went down to Springfield with all the big guys, and they all were preaching and they were all going out to eat, and they are all walking down there together and they all come up to his car and they all saw that bumper sticker on his car. And I guess might had a heart attack. But that's the, that's the way it was back then, man. And all these guys were... You know, and yet, I got to tell you, I, I, I really like Truman. In spite of his stand on the Bible and whatever, <clears throat> that was between him and the Lord. <clears throat> in the early years, this would have been 1972, when I was still in Canton, Truman came and placed a revival in, in Canton. In fact, he came two times. <clears throat> they, were the two, they were two of the greatest revivals I'd ever heard in my life. Back in '72, before he really got into the politics of everything, he was a great preacher. I, to this day, I still have the cassette tapes that he preached back in '71 and '72. Uh, I still have, uh, and it just as a young preacher, I remember listening to those sermons he preached. You've heard me do the preach on uh, the message on Lot versus Abraham, and I talk about you know how I got that message from him. If you listen to that tape, it's almost verbatim. When I was just a young kid, I listened to those things. He had four or five messages that he preached that just absolutely just were the greatest stuff I'd ever heard. And to this day, I still preach those messages, and they are it's some great stuff. So early on, you know, I mean, he, he was a great preacher. And I, I'm, you know, I'm indebted to him, you know, I learned a lot of things from him. And, uh, but that uh, he... Uh, he had no love for the King James Bible. In fact, he was on the, he thought it was a very important big deal. He was on the revision committee for the new King James Bible. And, you know, that's what they did. When Thomas Nelson came out with the new King James Bible, they basically got all these fundamental pastors. Again, how would you like to be, have your name on the front of the revision committee of the new Bible? I mean, that's something, right? So they suckered all these pastors in there and gave them nothing jobs to do. what they wanted was their uh, what they wanted was their endorsement so their people would buy it i mean honestly, if you saw my name on a Bible or a book that I said endorsed, would you not trust me and think that that that, that must be good or Bob wouldn't put his name on it? Well, that's what the people did that's all that Thomas Nelson wanted <coughs> and I remember one time you know I got I got in in real trouble. Um, They had a big conference, and Thomas Nelson was there. And the place was packed. And Thomas Nelson was promoting the New King James Bible. And you remember now, Thomas Nelson also prints Catholic Bibles and also prints Jehovah's Witness Bibles. At least they did. (coughs) And the head of... Promised nelson was up on the pulpit and the place was packed five thousand people there all pastors and workers you know and he was talking about how that they have a love for the bible and that they had a love to protect the purity of the king james bible and all that they did <clears throat> and then he opened it up and he says and you know i know that there's many people who maybe are confused about this and you think that there's they were trying to sell it as just the king james bible brought up to date and he asked if anybody had questions and I was sitting down about the third row, and I raised my hand. And he asked me. He says, yes, sir, what is your question? And I said, I really enjoyed what you just said about the James Bible, being endeared to your heart and being a thing that you love. I said, can I ask you a question? Do you say the same thing when you go before the Jehovah Witnesses and print out their Bibles and the Roman Catholics when you print theirs? Yeah, it got this, that quiet. And boy, I got my butt kicked after that one. I mean, I really did. I mean, I got hauled on the carpet. I didn't care. You know what? But... You know, that's just where it was. not just where it was. We had a guy like Jack Baskin out in California. He started the western branch of the Baptist Bible Fellowship. And, uh, you know, he didn't believe the Bible. A.V. Henderson. A.V. Henderson was a, a political boss out of Springfield that finally wound up taking uh, the church up in Detroit Mission, Megan. That used to be um, mm-hmm. J. Frank Norris's church. <clears throat> and uh, when uh, the split between Norris and... Uh, Beach <clears throat> um, ah, and Vic uh, Beach and Vic was the pastor up there when Beach and Vic died A.V. Henderson uh, went there and took that church and after A.V. Henderson retired then Truman Dollar went up and took that church <clears throat> so it was a thing where uh, A.V. Henderson was a very connected political guy uh, you had guys like Ed Heinson, and these are all doctors, by the way. It's Doctor Bob Jones the second, Doctor Bob Jones the third, Doctor Jack Hiles, Doctor Cummings, Doctor Hodges, Doctor Van Empey, Doctor Robinson, Doctor Falwell, uh, Doctor Dollar, Doctor Baskin, uh, Doctor Henderson, Doctor Ed Heinson, Doctor Ed Dobson, and they were guys that were Bible teachers down at Lynchburg, Virginia. Never believed the Bible a day in their life. And uh, <clears throat> I remember, I remember uh, Ed Heinson getting up and making fun of the idea of the law first mentioned in the Bible. This ridiculed it. And of course, all these guys are out of the ministry now. Most of them are divorced. Most of them have wrecked their lives. Uh, No, excuse me. God wrecked most of their lives because they tried to mess with the book. But that's just the way it went. You had guys like Dr. Stuart Custer and Dr. Neal, who were the primary Bible teachers at at Bob Jones University. And, of course, Ruckman's, uh, many of Ruckman's books are directed toward Neal and Custer. Uh, That was the heyday of the fight. And Dr. Custer and Dr. Ruckman went at it. In fact, one of his books, I think we got it back there, is one of the funny little things called Custer's Last Stand. And, uh, you know, Ruckman just tore him apart. He just tore him apart. There ain't any 10 Bible scholars on this planet that would ever step in the same room and the same table in a debate with Ruckman. I mean, he will cut your throat. I mean, I'm just telling you, I've watched it happen. I've watched him debate guys that thought they could handle him. He ripped them up so fast. I mean, if it was a boxing match, you were knocked out in the first, middle of the first round. You got guys like Tom Malone. Tom Malone was a great pastor. Dr. Tom Malone from Pontiac Mission. Again, Dr. Tom Malone. Started a Bible college. And... uh, there's the way it went you had Robert Sumner and uh, you know another guy uh, you had Dr. Uh, Bill Gothard from California in the a, in a Bill Gothard seminars Though you don't hear much about him anymore but boy there was a day when Bill Gothard was gone and uh, <clears throat> he was he was, to the, he was to the 80's and the 90's what Bob Jones was to the 60's and the 70's uh, but you see Bill Gothard now this is where it starts to go Bill Gothard wasn't a Baptist. Bill Gothard was a neo-evangelical. And this is where you start to see this thing change. When the Bible Baptist preachers, generation after generation, got farther from the Word of God and didn't hold the truth, that's what opened the door for the neo-evangelicals to come in and take over. And now the Baptists are out and the evangelicals are in. The evangelicals today have the control that the Baptist churches had 40 years ago and uh baptists have lost the punch they've lost the power it's all neo-evangelical at this point all the great preachers all the great radio pastors all the great churches like joel steen or uh, all these guys they're all neo-evangelicals uh rick warren the guy that wrote uh you know uh, <coughs> out there in saddleback <coughs> and uh and uh, uh they're all neo-evangelicals baptists have gone they've lost their punch And uh, they may walk around thinking they've got something going, but they don't have anything going, not a thing. Uh, You got guys like Elmer Towns. We talked about him. Summer Wimp. Jim Vineyard uh, was the big bus guy back in those days. Wally Beebe was another great uh, bus guy during that particular time. Uh, Dayton Hobbs, Rondi Bell, Holland London. Holland London was a good preacher. He never believed the Bible. I heard him several times. I heard all these guys one time or the other. <clears throat> but Holland London was a good preacher. I still have some of his tapes. I think someplace uh, that he preached. <clears throat> and uh, but he never believed the book. And most of these guys, they would, they would. One of the things that uh, Harold Haniger did, and he was my pastor in Canton, Ohio, at Canton Baptist Temple. <clears throat> one of the things that he did that I'm eternally grateful for was he brought all these guys in to preach. Almost every Sunday night we had one of these guys come in and fill the pulpit because he wanted to get people exposed to these guys. And uh, they would pretty much, uh, throughout the summer, uh, you know, because it would draw people in to come and hear him And that's what it was all about. And I got to hear some great guys. But I also back then, and this used to drive Bob Johnson crazy, as soon as those guys were done preaching, and this is my own stupidity, you know, in my younger years, I would be the first one to them, and I'd ask them where they were at on the King's James Bible, you know, and, and it, none of that ever went very well, but none of them believed the book. None of them did. Uh, <clears throat> you know, down at uh, BBC, in High Street Baptist Church, you had Dr. Dow, and then Dr. Cavan, and they were they were the old boys that uh, they dumped the book, and uh, you know that's they were they 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 ran High Street Baptist Church, who was the main church for Baptist Bible Fellowship. On the Southern Baptist side, you had the guy who who tried to held he who tried to hold the Southern Baptist accountable, and he's still alive today, Charles Stanley. And uh, Charles Stanley is a is a decent preacher. Oh, Dan, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God if his life depended on it. Uh, you got. Dr. Clyde Naramore, who brought in the Christian counseling syndrome along with Chuck Swindoll, you know, and now keep in mind, uh, as Bill Gothard, Clyde Naramore, and Chuck Swindoll, and then later on, John MacArthur, those were the big three that most of you know about, and they're all still alive, I believe, but not one of them is a Baptist. They're all neo-evangelicals. In fact, in the last 10 years, uh, Chuck Swindoll, I know John MacArthur has, they've all went now where they're Calvinist. They, they embraced the new form of Calvinism called Reformation theology. So, you know, and then we have you know, back in my day, Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye was a another guy that was a he was an opportunist. He wrote all kinds of books. I've heard Tim LaHaye uh, ate dinner with him, took him to the airport. One of the good things that I got to do when I was at the Baptist Temple uh, when I was coming up under Truman <clears throat> is I was low man on a totem pole. So every time these guys had to come into the airport or they had to go home, guess who got the hand off the stick to take them to the airport? Because nobody wanted to do it. Because some of these guys left early in the morning so you had to get up. And I always enjoyed taking them. I enjoyed picking them up because I got 35, 40 minutes to talk to them. And I would, you know, find out, you know, where they're at. And they they, they were very nice and very gracious and we had some good conversations. So uh, most of these guys, if I didn't get to uh, talk to them, or preach with them. I got to talk to him in this way and hear him preach. And Tim LaHaye was, was a, you know, he was a, you know, he was a, he was a, he was another one of those guys that uh, he just, you know, he, he was really big on himself. And uh, a couple of years before I, uh, I left there, I can't think of this guy's name. We had this guy who came in, and uh, it was when Truman was still there. And he had this guy come in, I, I cannot think of his name, but he was a real big, arrogant guy. And he, his big stick was he had this multimedia presentation on the book of Revelation. And he had five big screens up. <coughs> and, you know, he, he had multiple projectors. And he would stand up there and he would preach the book of Revelation and push the buttons and the pictures would come up to illustrate where he was at. <coughs> so, you know, and I should have known better. Truman asked me and Barb to go out and eat with him after the morning service because this guy was going to do his revelation thing in that evening service. You know, big deal. And I should have been smart enough to know that Truman just wasn't asking us to go out because we were buddies. We went out to eat, and then Truman says, oh, by the way, could you go back and help him set up for tonight, see? And I should have known it. So I said, sure, Absolutely. Again, you know, so we get there and this guy, I mean, he orders me around like I'm his slave. <laughs> I mean, he's telling me what to do and telling me this and telling me how stupid I am because of this or that. And he's he's going on about, you know, how great he is and how the people are just going to be astounded at what he's got tonight. And and just treat me like I was, you know, just like I mean, I, and, I, and then finally the icing on a cake. We get it pretty much set up. And there's a mess everywhere. And he basically says, I'm going back to my hotel room, and I'm going to to rest because I have to prepare myself for God to use me tonight in this thing. So you need to clean all this stuff up for me. And I said, sure, no problem. So I'm cleaning it all up, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy is absolutely the most arrogant guy I've ever met in my life. And I said, and about that time, it's only one of two times I ever heard God audibly speak to me. And God said, I agree, Bob. Why don't you teach him a lesson in humility? And I said, well, Lord, I'd be glad to. What do you got in mind? And he said, you know what? I'd like to see how he reacts when you get his slides out of sync. So for the next 20 minutes, I stole five slides out of this slide and put them in this dish, this dish over in this dish, this dish over in this dish. And I messed the thing up so bad that, that, that he just, it was terrible. And he got up there that night. Now, I got to tell you, I, we, we had a downstairs and we had a balcony and all the way to the back in the balcony at the very top. I got there before anybody else, and that was my prime seat. I was watching there. I told a friend of mine, Frank Litke. Remember Frank? I told Frank what I did. And Frank was just, Frank was as honored as I was. So me and Frank are sitting up there doing this thing, and we are just howling, laughing. And this guy down here getting ready, and he's saying, yes, and when the Revelation chapter 11 says, and he flipped it, it would be Revelation 4. And he didn't know what to do, and he was trying to fake it. And and every day out, Finally, he just he just shut the whole thing down and finished doing it. And and afterwards, afterwards, he, he I, I walked up on the platform and I and he and he was talking to Truman. And he says, he says, I I I I I don't know what happened. He says, I I, just, I I don't know what took. I just I just don't have a clue. And I looked at him and I said, Oh, I don't know either, brother. But I said, I want to know you something. I've never understood the Book of Revelation. Till tonight, (laughs) (laughs) he puffed up like a peacock, you know, and just thought that. that, that. Years later, years later, when Truman was gone, we had him back at the Baptist Temple, and and he wasn't doing a slide presentation. But after I forget what he was doing, but afterwards, the pastor Jeff was there then, and I I introduced him, and he was just he just as peacocky as he ever was. And he said, and I said to Jeff, I said, now Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but I said this, I can't think of his name. He's got one of the greatest presentations on the book of Revelation you've ever seen. And he, and, and Jeff said, oh really? And the guy says, oh, and the guy says, oh yes. He says, I do it all the time. And he said, I'd be glad to come and help you. And I looked at him and I said, if you do, may I please help you set up again? <laughs> he never figured it out that I was the guy that did that. And I'll tell you what. If you didn't do those kind of things, you went crazy. i just tell you. I can't think of his name, but I'll tell you. But he's one on the Tim LaHaye crowd. He's one of those kind of guys. Uh, Charles Billington. Now, there's a good one. I told you a couple weeks ago about the book, If You Can Ever Find It, God Is Real, written by Dallas Billington. Dallas Billington was a, an old Kentucky preacher boy who crossed the Ohio River and came up into Akron, Ohio back in the 30s and started the Akron Baptist Temple. That thing grew to about 10,000, 15,000 people in its heyday. And the old man believed the book from cover to cover, I mean, beginning to end. And, of course, uh, the old man died. He died about 70, uh, I remember when he died. He died about 72, 73, someplace in there. And his boy took it over. Huh? Uh, Dallas Billington. And his boy took it over, Charles Billington and uh, you know it was, a ter- it was it was the same story all these pastors who built these churches turned it over to their boys, their sons Harold Henniger did the same thing and every one of those boys destroyed that church you know why? because those boys never put the blood, sweat and tears in it to build it like the old man did and they didn't have any appreciation for it and I saw that happen all across the board <clears throat> one of my favorite preachers oh, oh, this guy was great, I love this guy And he was a King James guy. He'd have Ruckman up to his church in Cleveland. We'd go up there to Cleveland Baptist Temple. His name was Roy Thompson. I'm sure Roy's dead by now. (coughs) Roy was one of the greatest preachers I ever heard. He believed the Bible from cover to cover. And Roy, the first time I heard him, he preached preached in Canton Baptist Temple, again, on a Sunday night. (coughs) And he preached the message, Zacchaeus. One of the greatest messages I have ever heard in my life. I still preach it today. (coughs) I still preach it today. And uh, when we do our throwback messages, that's one of the messages I'm going to preach. I probably have preached that message a hundred times across this country. And it's a message he preached on Zacchaeus. And I preached it verbatim just like he did because I ain't going to improve on it. it was a, he was a great, great, great preacher. And uh, I had a guy, another guy, Dr. Greg Dixon. <clears throat> Greg Dixon was a Baptist preacher who got caught up uh, against the federal government and he started preaching, instead of the gospel and getting people saved and teaching the Bible, he started preaching that uh, Christians didn't have to pay their income taxes because it was against the uh, Constitution to pay income taxes. And uh, he, last I heard, he was in Leavenworth, and you got about 20 years for that. So started a prison ministry, I guess. Uh, you had guys like Jerry Thorpe out of Texas, Odessa, Texas. And uh, Curtis Hudson was a great evangelist. And Curtis Hudson, uh, <clears throat> uh, but none of these guys believed the book. Every one of them, every once in a while, you got one. And uh, But every one of these guys, for the most part, had one thing in common. Go ahead. Sword of the Lord. He he took over after John R. Rice. John R. Rice had the sword of the Lord for many, many years. And then Curtis Hudson tied in with John R. Rice and his off of him, really. Because they both were evangelists. And then when the old man died, then Curtis Hudson took over the sword of the Lord. We used to call it the sword of the Lordy. But uh, but they all had one thing in common, and that is the fact that they did not believe the word of God in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, these churches and the men that they produced, they were held up as great churches. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, but they're they're folding up and denying the Bible uh, was what gave way to the charismatic movement taking over, and the neo-evangelical. And today in America, the two main churches, the two main spheres of that was a mark of your success. And everybody, everybody uh, was up to build the biggest and the best church. And uh, back in these times, I can't even tell you how they used to have bond drives, where the people in the church would buy bonds. Uh, and then those bonds would be held in reserve, and then they would get enough money, and then those bonds would come due, and the church would have to pay off on the bonds, and you made money just like buying a CD or buying a treasury bond. The same thing, except it was from your church. I cannot tell you how many bond uh, drives flopped and how many people lost their money. Uh, There were churches uh, that I preached in that they they took on a position of becoming getting their F F C I C or whatever it is, and they became a bank. And they told their people, instead of putting your money in a bank, we'll be the bank, we'll be God's bank. And they got accredited with the FIC or FAC or whoever they got, a, a federal regulatory group, and they actually became a credit union or a bank that the people in the church put all their savings in them. They used that money then for ministry and then, you know, uh, worked that that, that, and that just, that's way beyond the scope of the, of the book of Acts and what a church is supposed to be. But when your drive is to build a big building and you have to have millions of dollars to do it, you take the first Baptist church in Raytown, and this is no shot at them because we all know they're worthless, so it's not a, it's not a cheap <laughs> shot. That, that first edition set cost them $68 million. I mean, uh, you know, and then they had another thirty, forty million dollars on top of that to, to finish the thing off. If they ever did it, <clears throat> I just don't understand that. I mean, there's churches that they 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 have a sound system that cost them a half a million dollars. Man, all you need is a microphone and two speakers and an amp. I mean, wh- what do you do with a half a million dollar sound system? And of course you know, it's all about bells and whistles because they think that's what brings people in. And that's where it all went during this time. And these guys, uh, once you get in that position and you owe a, a building payment of, of uh, $100,000 a month, you can't afford to tick anybody off with your preaching that may be a tithing family that you lose. And I guarantee you, and if you don't know this yet, I promise you it's true, When you're a pastor in that position and you feel that kind of pressure and you know that if you've got families that don't tithe and they don't give or you make them mad and they leave and you don't cater to them and they leave and then you can't make the building payment, it's just, it's that old saying, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, you can't have all that you have if somebody isn't paying for it. You cannot feel that kind of pressure and not curb your preaching. You can't have that kind of pressure and not think twice about preaching a negative truth that somebody may get mad and leave. And that is a pressure that as a pastor you never want to be under. You never want to be under. Don't let let anything dictate you preaching the truth. If it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing to follow and it's the biblical principle, if the whole church leaves, you preach it and stand by it. And, you know, and and that's why, you know, coming up the way I come up, I understand that world. I was in that world, but I never became part of that world. And uh, I have about as much desire, you know, to build some big church edifice that, you know, a monument to man is is, uh, no desire whatsoever. I'm not saying we'll stay here all of our lives. You know what? We were looking for a place when God gave us this one. And I'm not such a fool as to say that this is where we'll be forever, but I guarantee you this, we'll never go into debt uh, in any way, shape, or form to the tune where that it, it, we can't sustain what we're doing. And uh, we just, you just not do that. And when you do that, then it's going to affect I me. Mean, when a pastor has to worry about where the money's going to come to pay for the building, uh, and it, it's got to affect what you do. And you know what? I, I just I can't get there. I, just, I won't allow myself to get there. We can't pay for this place. If God's people don't do it, I'll resize the place, take the people that are tithing, and go get a smaller building. And everybody else can go do whatever they want to do. It doesn't bother me. I'm not into the size of something. I'm into the quality of it. And, of course, you know, when you build a church the right way, the people understand what you're doing. They make the investment of not only their lives, but their finances, because they know... It's something that's not being wasted on some gigantic auditorium someplace or the pastor's Seville Cadillac that he drives around town and, and all those things and or his big palatial palace that the church is paying for. You know what? I mean, it just doesn't work that way. No pastor should get his car paid for. No pastor should get his house paid for. He had to make a decent salary just like anybody else does in the church. But that it need to stop because once you start treating him like the pope, It's easy to go out and buy you one of them robes and one of them big pointy hats, and uh, it it just doesn't work. That's what happens to churches. That's what happens to pastors. They get better than their people because they start living better than their people. I heard, I can't say all the things they used to say, but we heard Bob Jones Jones the third one time, or the second one time, uh, he was preaching, and he was doing a good job, but he was preaching on living by faith. And he was coming to the Canton Baptist Temple. (coughs) And he was preaching to people who were blue-collar people. They worked at Republic Steel. They worked at Timkins. They were common laborers. It was a blue-collar church. (coughs) And uh, he's preaching to them about about a life of faith and trusting God and faith. And old Sabaka's sitting down front, (coughs) and I'm sitting there next to him. (coughs) And he's cussing up a storm under his breath. I mean, he's mad about something. And and afterwards I said, what in the world would you deal with that? He says, teaching about life by faith. He says, what does he know about faith? He says he lives in tax-free property. He lives in a palatial palace. He never breaks a fix a broken toilet, never puts in a busted light bulb. He never has to sweat on a car payment, a house payment. His kids never have to worry about getting sick. He doesn't have to worry about anything in the house. He's got make six figures a year. He lives in a chateau. He's got millions of pieces of art that's probably worth $10 million. Somebody cooks his meals. He has everything he wants, and he's going to tell these people about living by faith. That's what happens. And the whole concept of Christianity becomes an illusion. And as a pastor, you can't ever live higher than your people. You just can't. You just can't. And so we see the second thing here was an inability to preach or teach negative Bible truths. The, t- the nickels and noses was the bottom line. And to dictate that, the, the message was don't rock the boat, don't cause any waves. Don't get people mad. If you lose them, you'll lose their attendance and their income. And the ultimate goal of every message and every decision concerning any spiritual issue or, or whatever was done was made not on the basis of what the book said, but on the basis of how will it affect our income. And when you get to that place in a church that you've got to worry about what you preach or who stays and who leaves based on how's it going to affect our income, when it had to be based on what does the book say, you're in trouble. And that was the church. That's where it got to. And it only got worse from there. The third thing is it brought about an artificial culture and an artificial Christianity. We saw this thing develop in the last 10 years that basically what churches do today now the evangelicals have taken over and we know that and the charismatics have taken over. The Baptists are trying to get back in vogue. So they're trying to do uh, what the evangelicals do, and they try to do what the charismatics do. So we see Baptist churches now <coughs> who who think that the way to reach people is to bring God and the Bible and their church service down to man's level. So we see now where many, many Baptist churches, they'll have a, they'll have a service on Saturday night, <coughs> And that service on Saturday night will be for... And I know what they tell you. Well, we'll reach people on Saturday night that uh, we wouldn't reach on Sunday. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says they met on the first day of the week. And it's not your, it's not your job to alter what the Bible says to have, have your one of your church services on Saturday night so lazy people don't have to come up and get up the next morning to go, or they want to go here, or they want to do that, so you make it convenient for them. <clears throat> what in the world are you doing? I mean, you stay with what the Bible says, and uh, it's the Holy Spirit of God that gets those people, and if the Holy Spirit of God can't get them, moving your church service to Saturday night isn't going to do anything at all, but that's what they do. And then on Sunday morning, we want to make everybody happy. We want to have, we don't want you to leave. So for all you old folks who who are hardliners, we'll have a traditional service. And then for those of you who are not hardliners, we want to make you happy. We'll have a contemporary service. And then, oh, we have some that are the best of both. So we'll have a blended service. We'll blend a little bit of both. And that's exactly what happens. Once the Bible goes, the music goes. There was a time, and I remember these times. <clears throat> I was part of these times. <clears throat> there was times when a pastor got up to preach that an hour and a half would pass, and you it seemed like it was five minutes. That guy took the Bible and the Bible alone and with the Holy Spirit of God painted a picture for you that you hung on to every word that he said. I remember sitting there and hearing those old boys preach about hell that it was so hot you could almost feel the heat. I watched the old boy preach on the crucifixion one night that you could almost feel and hear the slaps of Christ's back with a whip. I mean, these guys were masters at preaching and they took the Bible and the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God painted the picture because of the preaching and the doctrine that gave that person that was listening exactly what they needed. And when they lost the Bible, they lost that. So you know what they had to do next? They had to take churches and make them entertainment areas. They had to bring in the praise bands. They had to drop the lights and have the smoke come out from under the altar. They had to use lighting and they had to use all kinds of things to and all kinds of gimmicks to make this thing. Now, to paint a picture because no longer can a pastor stand in that pulpit, open that book, and paint a picture with the words in the Bible. And that's, that's what happened. And everything became artificial. Most Baptist churches during the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and right up to where we're at became as phony as the $3 bill. Their church became a, three, a theatrical church whose job was to entertain instead of enlighten. To excite instead of rebuke to please instead of correct and to gain the favor of men instead of in favor of God and, uh, and uh, they don't preach anymore to turn out soldiers while well, the true body of Christ was being entertained and put into the passive state the charismatics and the new evangelicals took the thing over and that's what happened <coughs> while well, Baptist churches lost the truth and they got into all this and that generation after generation after generation the farther they got, <coughs> the worse the generation became, and when we lost the power and the Baptist church lost what it had, the devil brought up the neo-evangelical and the charismatic movement, and now today, that is the basis for modern New Testament Christianity in America, and it's about as dead as a stinking whale on the beach uh, 20 degrees off the equator. It stinks to high heavens, and, uh, but that's where it's at today. Now next time, I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to show you the inside of the charismatic movement. I'm going to show you the key members of the charismatic movement going all the way back, bring up to the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, and then tie it right into where it went, and then we'll do the same thing with the new evangelicals. And then I'll go back and I'm going to show you all the way back. We're going to go back and show you the devil's plan 400 years ago to bring us to right where we're at right now. You've got to understand this point. All other point of church history, I may Get out of a book and may have read a thousand books and and and, and researched it out one way or the other, but when it comes to later seeing church, I don't have to do a lot of research on it because I lived it and I was paying attention, and I watched the thing as it went right down the line. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer.